I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. The book of Isaiah, chapter 35. And there we will read all ten verses. Isaiah 35, beginning at verse 1. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf Death unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of the jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. With singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thus far the reading of God's Word. I invite you to keep your Bibles on your laps in front of you as we will be referring to it often. Let's pray though and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time in God's Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised us to illumine our hearts and our minds with your Spirit. And we pray now, Father, that as we come to this text, that you would do just that, that you would help us, Father, to understand, you would help us to apply, that, Heavenly Father, that we would not um, place our troubles for the moment up on a shelf or outside of these walls, but, Lord, you would take our troubles, help us to take our troubles here where your word can speak to them. I pray, Father, that you would be with me as I seek to lead your people through this wonderful passage, this wonderful promise, that, Heavenly Father, you would help me to be clear and understandable that your people would be built up and that we would each one be equipped for the work and the life that you have called us to live. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I think all of us, it's safe to say, we have something that we are anticipating. Children, I'm guessing that you right now are anticipating December 25, where we give and give gifts, right? We anticipate that day. Now, what is anticipation? That's when you're looking forward to something that's going to be happening soon. Now, sometimes anticipation isn't always a good thing. 
Mom or dad might be able to tell you of a time where maybe they did something wrong at work and they were just anticipating coming in on Monday and finding out what they did wrong and what was going to be the problem. And so sometimes our anticipation can be for something that's coming that we know is negative. But most of the time, when we think of anticipation, we're thinking of good things, right? We're thinking of a vacation that we have planned coming ahead. We're thinking it's going to be cold in February, and we're going to take a few days, and we're going to get away like some people get to when it go to warm, someplace where it's warm. And we anticipate this wonderful thing that's going to happen. Well, the people of the Old Testament, those who, were, who still knew who the God of creation was, lived with anticipation. They were anticipating the promised Messiah. A great anticipation that had been there since the beginning of the earth when God promised that first, uh, first gospel that he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent and that, and that that serpent would strike his heel. And so God's people and those who still knew him anticipated and looked forward to this advent of the Messiah. Now again, children, maybe that word Advent, maybe you hear it tossed around once in a while, but maybe you don't know what it means. This time of year in the, the church calendar, we might say, is a time where we think about the coming of Jesus. Advent is a Latin term that describes coming or arrival. All right? So the Old Testament people were looking forward to the arrival, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so it's during this time of the year that sometimes we focus on those parts of the Scriptures that are speaking specifically about the coming of Jesus Christ. It spe they speak to the anticipation that God's people have. And so today we have this passage from Isaiah placed before us. A passage, a passage, that draws our attention to the supernatural change that Jesus Christ as the Messiah brings to this world and to the sinful people in it. The anticipated Messiah, the one whom the Old Testament longed and was looking for, is pictured here in this passage, here in Isaiah 35. And so as we go through it, I'm hoping that, that you'll be able to see that this passage, because it's about Jesus, is calling us to believe in Jesus Christ because he is the Lord of life. Now sometimes that's a difficult thing to think about. Even when we're Christians and we've been Christians for the majority of our life, there are so many other things around us that beg for our attention that promise us life. We see it in the advertisements. We see it in our social feeds. We see it in the news. If only you had a husband like this, then you would really be able to live. If your, your wife was only like this, you would really be able to live. If you had this house, if you had this job, if you had, you fill in the blank, the world around us promises thing after thing after thing that promises us life. But in the end, when we've lived with them long enough, we know that they only leave us wanting. 
They only leave us even sometimes to a place of literal death. They leave us lost. And we need something more. Here the ancient peoples were waiting for the Messiah. And so here in this passage, Isaiah very poetically describes who he would be. Jesus then makes it very clear that all the Old Testament was waiting and and looking forward to him as he would come to save sinners from eternal death, brokenness, and the confusion that this world swirls around us and distracts us with. So maybe you're thinking, why should I believe that Isaiah wrote this so many hundreds of years earlier? Why should I believe that that is about Jesus? Well, the first thing that I want you to see then is that Jesus brought new life where there was only death. Have you ever seen a desert? I mean a real desert, not like dunes or something like that, but a real desert. I had never seen one until last spring where we were able to take our two sons, celebrate a graduation from college and a graduation from high school. We flew to Las Vegas to take a tour of some national parks. We landed in Vegas, we got in a rental car, we headed out of Las Vegas, headed for the um, Hoover Dam, and we come into what, if you didn't know any better, you'd swear was the surface of the moon. There isn't a living thing anywhere. It is rock and dirt as far as you can see. There is one kind of farm that is there, a solar farm. It was unbelievable. As we were driving through, we saw all these things. And then when we came back through on a way at the end of the trip, we saw all the panels on their brackets. The reason why they could put a solar farm there was because the land was worthless for everything else. It was dead. That was the only way that that earth could be used for something good. And so that's the picture here that Isaiah paints for us. This is a desert that he's talking about. This is death. You're in it too long, you die. Nothing grows in it. It is a place of death. And so what the passage shows us here in verses 1 and 2 is something supernatural has to happen. The coming of Jesus then brings supernatural life. Look at the description there with me, right? Verse 1 and 2. Wilderness, dry land, desert. Uh, Verse 7, burning sand and thirsty ground. Right? There's nothing but death in this place. But, look what happened. How in the world could this be transformed, right? It needs something supernatural. It needs to go from death to blossoming. Now, of course, in the desert, all around the world, They irrigate it, and they're able to bring a a form of life there as long as there is water. But what happens when the water is gone? It goes back to death. What's being described here is a supernatural change that once was filled with death is now filled with life. And that can only come with the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes into the earth and changes that which was dead into that which was living. Here as the picture is painted for us here, a supernatural change from desert to blossoming 
crocus fields. Now, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, simply put, is wherever Jesus Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. People who have been moved from death to life. They were a picture of death. And they're moved by him as he rules and reigns in their hearts, transforming them to be blossoming. This isn't a geographical area, but it begins, however, with the ministry of Jesus Christ as he comes to this earth. In Matthew 4, we read, from the time that time forward, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In order to enter the kingdom of God, it has to come through Christ. 2 Peter 1, For in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To be in the kingdom of Jesus Christ means you've been moved from the desert wasteland to the blossoming glory of His kingdom. And this kingdom of God, however, while it came in Christ, it will come in its fullness at the end of time. The book of Revelation, chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. And so, the people of Israel, the people in Isaiah's day, anticipated the Messiah who would come, and he brought salvation. He brought that supernatural change from death to life. But yet we look forward to a, when that will be completed in the last day. But look also that it is through Jesus that life will replace death. This wilderness dry land will blossom like a crocus, will blossom abundantly. It'll have the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Now that might sound really strange, those places, but those were the, the geographical areas of their time that when you wanted to speak about the most beautiful place on earth, that's what that was. The cedars of Lebanon supplied the wood to build Solomon's temple, the most beautiful building on the earth. The two mountains were glorious in their beauty for Israel, all of Israel, to see. And so through Jesus then, he brings life where there once was death, and it's life abundant. Crocuses blooming in an abounding way. Beauty that is just awe-inspiring. That is the change that Christ brings when he comes to this earth. Now why do I say that? How can I prove that? Some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 begins by describing our condition apart from Christ. Not as a desert wasteland, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That is our reality, apart from Christ. But as the passage goes along, into verse 4, there's a change, and then in verse 5 it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, we were made alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the picture of the transformation of the desert is now applied through Jesus Christ to us as those who were dead in our trespasses are given new life. The old King James Version talks about the quickening of life. 
That which was dead is now alive because of Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah's original listeners would have looked for an immediate fulfillment in this prophecy. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he provides a word picture in Isaiah 35 of the supernatural need of each one of us. Of every person who has ever lived on the face of this earth other than Jesus Christ himself. You and I of ourself are in a desert condition. You and I are dead in our sin. We need this supernatural, life-giving ministry to bring new life and abundance. And that's why God's people for millennia had anticipated the advent of the Messiah because of what he would bring. So maybe you're thinking, that's all great, but what proof is there that this passage in the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is about Jesus, that, that Jesus is the answer that Isaiah was looking for. To show you that, I want to see how, you to see how Jesus demonstrated his power, this supernatural power, to save people by reversing the curse of brokenness. The original hearers, they, used, they heard this as a word of encouragement that God was going to be with them, go with them, and care for them. Look what verses 3, 4, and 5 say. The transition there, right? Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Those who are anxious, call them to be strong. Know that God will come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse 6, the lame will leap. The mute will sing. That's the promise that God's people heard. Again, how do those things happen? It's supernatural, but in this poetic prophecy, it gives us imagery for Israel to look forward to. Most, most scholars think they were, that this imagery comes from the experience of Egypt, of leaving Egypt. That this is what the people looked at. This is what they felt. This is what they experienced in the good word that came to him. Imagine the, the long trek from Egypt across looking at the vast desert, longing to go to the promised land, the heat, the desert, the death, the weakness, the failure, all those things and what they would have had it endured. In God's good providence for us, however, this word picture of Isaiah 35 describes Jesus in his work on earth, and specifically his miracles. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles, to Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Matthew 11. I really want you to turn here so you can read it with me. Matthew 11. There's an event here that we need that, that helps us to understand exactly what is going on in Isaiah. Jesus performed his miracles and he did so for two reasons. We see some of that here in Matthew 11, beginning at verse 2. Now when John heard in prison, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Okay, so he's anticipating the advent of the Messiah. Are you the one who is to come? And look at Jesus' answer. And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, 
the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus tells John the Baptist, I am the Messiah, and this is my credentials. This is my proof. Everything that was written in the Old Testament, all of these supernatural, amazing healing acts are fulfilled in me as I do these miracles. Those miracles revealed or confirmed his messianic credentials, you might say, that he truly was the one that God's kingdom had come in him. They prove his identity for who he is. They illustrate that the kingdom of God in Christ is able to reverse the curse, taking back what the kingdom of darkness had destroyed, and he renews it with life. Right? Because that's one thing. When, when, we, when, when we look at these things and we look at our physical bodies and how we want healing in them, the proof is in the pudding if you can really make it happen, right? Jesus uses his miracles to provide a proof to who he really is. And so he quotes Isaiah to prove to John the Baptist, I am he. So, this is, the, this is what Scripture has laid out. This is the truth of the Gospel. How can I then have this experience in life? And this is, this is, this is a great picture that is described for us. I think we can understand even more so maybe than Israel did. I don't know, but we have highways here. We have highways everywhere. And that's what verses 8 through 10 are all about. That Jesus is the only way to experience this new and everlasting life. That in the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that through Him there is the way of salvation found in Him alone. So let's look at this highway that is described, right? So we experience the difference all the time. We can go down a two-track country road or we can go down an interstate highway. We can see the difference if we have to make uh, our own way or if we have a highway. The highway is the quicker, the better way, generally speaking. So look at this highway as it is described. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. So the idea of holiness and the unclean will not be there. One of the important aspects of holiness when the Bible talks about it, there's two different things that that it can be talking about. Holiness has the idea of being made clean. That something has been made clean, it's been made holy. Today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper and in there we will be celebrating with an element that is a sign and seal of the blood of Christ shed to make His people holy. It's His blood covers their sins, making them clean. And so this highway is that holy, clean way. It is is unique in that way. That, that death and that destruction that is elsewhere is not there, but it is clean. But look what more it says about this highway. It is also exclusive. And the highway should be called the way of holiness. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. The redeemed shall walk there. 
Another aspect of the idea of holiness is that something has been set apart. And so there is this exclusivity that the way to the Father is only on this highway and it is only for the redeemed. It is only for them. And so there is that idea then that it is not mixed. That there is not the the threat that comes from the unclean, the unset apart, those who hate God on this way, but it is made pure through Jesus Christ. Next, look at what it says about this highway in verses 8 and 9. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast. I love in the Bible this word fool. You might be thinking, well, that is really weird because that's not a good word. But it's what it communicates. In the Scripture, generally speaking, say in the book of Proverbs, when someone is called a fool, they're called an unbeliever. That's what it means in the book of Proverbs. But it doesn't have to only mean that. Here, I think it takes on a different meaning, and that just means someone who is weak in the faith. Someone who does dumb stuff. Someone who isn't able to always make the right decision according to their faith. Someone who is tempted and gives in. Right? I think that's what this, this fool on this highway is. Right? So it can't be a person who's unsaved because they're on the road to heaven. So what does it say about this fool? They will not go astray. And so it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a phrase for assurance. That no matter how much you screw up in the faith, you cannot get off the highway. You cannot go astray. That this highway is for those whom Christ has died for and put on this road. And there is no falling away. You are safe in Christ until the last day. Until you spend eternity with Him after walking this holy highway. But also it talks about these ravenous beasts and this lion. Well, what would those ravenous beasts do? They would come as the people of Israel were walking on the road to get to the promised land. And those ravenous beasts might come out of their cave or come out of some place and and steal someone away and destroy them. And here in Jesus, on this highway to heaven, We have no fear of these wild beasts. We have no fear of destruction coming upon us from outside because of what Christ has done. We are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, look at how this highway is speaking of ultimate things. That The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Everlasting joy and sorrow will flee away. Now when I read that last phrase that sorrow and sighing shall flee away, my mind immediately went to the end of the book of Revelation. Where Jesus Christ himself comes and wipes the tears of his people and there will no longer be crying and weeping anymore. This highway leads to everlasting, eternal 
joy. Not just joy for this week, for this day, for a month, for a year, for this lifetime, but it is everlasting. The sorrow that we experience even now will be taken away. It will flee away. This is not just about having a good place to walk or a good life now. But this is about what Christ has done as He's moved us from being dead in the desert, broken in life, and given us new life for eternity. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the highway of Isaiah 35. He is holy, exclusive. We cannot be lost in Him. He brings that which was dead to life, everlasting life, for now and for eternity. And so, friends, this passage in Isaiah is not just about deserts. It's not just about broken bones and those who can't see and those who can't hear. But this is about the way of life in Christ. This is about His first advent. But even more so for us as we anticipate His second coming, His second advent. While Israel longed for the coming of the Messiah, the church and the world now even waits for Him again. But this time, however, the life, the perfection, the high will be all leading to heaven for eternity with Him. The reality then that is shown to us in this poem, it points us to Jesus. And it begs a question, does it not? It makes us ask this question that if Jesus, whom we celebrate as a baby now through this Christmas season, we celebrate Him as a baby now. He was born to live and die. And if this is true about Him, that He was born to live and die so that those who are dead in their sins, broken in this world, they are human beings who would have only one way to the Father, one way of hope, and one way to eternal life. If that is all true, do you then believe in this, Savior, this Jesus as the Savior of your soul and the Lord of your life? The passage says who He is what he has done, and how he has done it. Will you believe it? Without Christ, we'll remain dead in the desert, broken, battered, and bruised by this world with no pathway, no way to life eternal, no way of life, period. There is only one way, and it is Jesus. And so as Isaiah wrote so many hundreds of years, even before Jesus came, that it was confirmed in him, that He truly is the Lord of life. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, You have blessed us with so much. We are so thankful, Lord, for Your Word. For here, Father, we have this incredible picture that's been painted for us. This painting in words of how Jesus comes to bring us new life in Him. And so, Lord, even as we we go through this season as we go to Christmas parties, as we listen to Christmas music, as we see that word plastered all around us. We pray, Father, that you'd help us, each one, to be renewed in our confession of faith before you.
to know you truly as the Lord of life, as Isaiah puts it here. And that, Lord, it would in turn cause us to rejoice now and forevermore as we walk on the way to Zion, heaven itself, for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.